think the most useful, if you like, or summation of the prevention principle seems to me to be what Mr. Justice Jackson said in Multiplex and Honeywell, where he very concisely sort of condensed down what the prevention principle is all about and what the consequences of it are for um, a construction contract without a proper extension of time clause. Yeah. Um, one question I had for you was, he drew upon the previous authorities that you've mentioned, but I wondered whether he'd gone a little step further. Uh, this is meant as a criticism at all, but had, had you, I mean, it's now called the orthodox position, but do you feel he, he added anything in there? He, he, he's, by, by seeking to summarise it, he actually created some, some more law? I think this concept of time at large is, is something that has been taken a little bit too far. Because if you go back to, you have to have a really detailed look at what was happening in the House of Lords in Trollope and Coles. Because when you look at the various speeches, you can see that actually there's, there's not really a majority support for a time at large position. But, but what Mr. Justice Jackson, as he then was in Multiplex, did is he, he made these three propositions. Well, well first of all, this, this is how he summarised the, the position. He said, in the field of construction law, one consequence of the prevention principle is that the employer cannot hold the contractor to a specified completion date if the employer has, by act or omission, prevented the contractor from completing by that date. Now, so far, so good. That's all consistent with what we've gone over before. It goes on, though, to say, instead, time becomes at large and the obligation to complete by the specified date is replaced by an implied obligation to complete within a reasonable time. The same principle applies as between main contractor and subcontractor. So he, he distills it down into three propositions. The first is that actions by the employer, perfectly legitimate under the contract, may still be characterised as an act of prevention. That's all very consistent. Second is acts of prevention by an employer do not set time at large if the contract provides an extension of time in respect of those events. So his second proposition just leaps into this time at large point without really a great deal of discussion about what it means or, or its impact on, on the contract, how you're supposed to deal with it. And then he says, insofar as the extension time clause is ambiguous, it should be construed in favour of the contractor. So in effect, what he's saying there is, you know, if there's some sort of ambiguity, if it's not clear, then ultimately we're going to give the contractor the benefit of the doubt and the prevention principle steps in. And we'll come into this later and how this is discussed in the shipbuilding world, because that's really where, where the hot debate is about the application of this is at the moment. But what's quite surprising about this you know, resetting of the orthodoxy is there's no discussion here about what does time at large mean? Does it mean that, that it's generally accepted that the liquidated damages mechanism falls away? But that seems such an extreme result when you could say as an alternative, well, here's an event. We can assess how, how much critical delay was caused by an event. Why don't we just give you an extension of time for that period? and you st you're still entitled to claim your liqu liquidated damages for the period. Where's the discussion of that in the, in the authorities? This accepted wisdom of time being at large and the liquidated damages regime falling away is quite interesting from a jurisprudential perspective because all that Lord Denning said in Trollope and Coles was that you cannot claim any penalties for liquidated damages for non-completion in the time of delay caused by that um, relevant event, or whatever, uh, delaying event, the act of prevention. So on the face of it, that gives you the scope to say, well, you can claim liquidated damages 
for the period of delay for which the contractor is responsible for. But that's, that just has never been picked up and run with in the jurisprudence, as far as I can see. It's extraordinary that, if you actually think about it, because, you know, you, you, you said at the beginning of, the, of this podcast about when we, when we were junior lawyers, and we, we both discussed this, didn't we, that we both had the same reaction, and we accept this wisdom that uh, liquidated damages falls away. But the parties have spent a lot of time and have very carefully agreed what one day, one week of delay is going to be worth in terms of damage. And to just throw that all away because, you know, the extension of time clause isn't, isn't perfectly drafted does seem like a, a pretty extraordinary outcome. I think it must be, it has to be right, doesn't it, that if the employer delays the contractor, the, the employer can't take advantage of that. That seems to me to be perfectly reasonable and fair. You would think so, yeah. But, the, but then to take that and say, and by the way, you care, this carefully calculated set of liquidated damages which may benefit both parties. Obviously, it's a benefit to the employer in the sense that it doesn't have to prove its loss, and maybe that's the most significant point to make about that, about the greater damages. But there is, a, there is obviously, there is uncertainty on the part of the, uh, the contractor as well um, about what, it's, what risk it's facing. There's a debate about whether the, the cap on liquidated damages is maintained if time comes, comes at large. I'm not going to get into that. But you can see how the contractor might be grateful for just knowing what it's on, on the hook for and not having to argue and review what the employer's case is on delay damage. So, yeah, precisely. You, I mean, what do you yeah, do I mean, in that just vacuum? Yeah, how do you fill that vacuum? So, I mean, you cast aside, as you said, in, in theory, the detailed negotiations between the parties about how the risk will be balanced and how time will be be managed and and you set that all aside well what are you going to use to assess the reasonable time for completion what are you going to use apart from the contractor's previous programs the terms of the agreement that the parties have reached of course you could argue that okay well the contractor in some way wins the lottery and you get to draw the line at the date of the act of prevention you say okay we totally reassess all of the circumstances in the case at that point and we say all contractor delays taken into account, what's a reasonable date for completion going forward? Is that really reasonable? I can't see it is. You know, how, why, why should the contractor suddenly win the lottery because of one act of prevention? And these are points that have been made in the jurisprudence. So Coleman J in Balfour Beating Chestermount made the point about, well, what, what happens if you just have one extra day of work caused by an act of prevention? Does that mean the whole thing set aside? And, and this is what he said. Uh, the remarkable consequences of the application of this principle could therefore be as if the contractor fell well behind the clock and overshot the completion date. If the architect then gave an instruction for the most trivial variation representing perhaps only a day's extra work, the employer would thereby lose all right to liquidated damages for the culpable delay. What might be a trivial variation instruction would destroy the whole liquidated damages regime. So it's not as if the High Court judges are not questioning whether or not this is a sensible position, but still we're left with multiplex as the sort of as what is being taken up in all the successive jurisprudence in the shipbuilding cases as the clear statement of the principle uh, as a matter of law without without any significant question. But we'll come on to how that's dealt with in the shipbuilding industry. But it is interesting that to Vivian Ramsey, Mr. Justice Ramsey, as he then was in Blue Water Energy Services and Mercon, he also raise some criticism to say saying that the principle is of some antiquity and has a surprising effect on the contractual obligations as to the time 
of completion. Uh, now, in Keating Chambers, we Adam Constable is the editor of a book on offshore construction, and we put in this sort of analysis of the time at large point into a chapter of the book. And in that, Mr. Justice Ramsey wrote the foreword and commented expressly on that when we were suggesting that maybe the the time at large has had its day and there needs to be a different approach. It was interesting that when he was still a judge, he was coming out positively and saying that, that, that it's absolutely right, that this is something that needs to be looked at. But we don't get that opportunity anymore in the construction setting because our extension of those time mechanisms are drafted so broadly. 